You are listening to the I Am God's Beloved podcast, hosted by Susan Quinnell and Kim Decker. Scripture tells us that we are God's beloved children, that God sees us, that God delights in us. We long to know those who we worship alongside deeper so that we might better understand the breadth of God's love and the expansiveness of God's kingdom. Please join us as we hear the diverse and powerful personal stories of some of God's beloved children. Before we get into the interviews, Susan and I want to share a little about why we wanted to have these conversations in podcast form. For starters, I love the podcast format, and given that we aren't able to connect in person as easily these days, I saw this format as a way to connect with members of our church in a deeper way. I've always loved hearing from women at Women in Touch and at various retreats, and this seemed like another way to dig deeper and learn more from different people. While God was stirring that desire in Kim, I was looking for a way in which the BIPOC voices in our body could be heard. I hoped to relay God's good news of love for each and every one of us as beloved children of God. Scripture communicates God's magnificent creation in each of us. God sees us. God hears us. As we know ourselves and one another more fully as children of God, and we become acquainted, develop, and share relationships with our brothers and sisters, in Christ, within Jesus' love, we have the potential to move towards unity in God's kingdom. So we reached out to folks with our vision. We asked people to pray and consider whether involvement with this project would be life-giving or would be life-draining. We want to honor people with this space, not harm them. Listeners may recall that we had the pleasure of hearing a sermon from Oshetta Moore this summer. Recently on her Instagram, she posted the following. Dear white peacemakers, this is our work together, white peacemaker, to reclaim humanity for both of us and create a counterculture that actively exposes and resists the violence of white supremacy culture. Asking us to share our traumatic race stories on panels and podcasts for articles and commentary in small groups or in coffee dates sometimes feels like you're robbing us of our liberation. Pastor Moore then offered some suggestions about how to best help our BIPOC brothers and sisters. In this instance, it was during the verdict of the trial of Derek Chauvin. And she added, please, please, please practice Christ-like love and do everything you can to protect and preserve the belovedness of your black and brown leaders. This could be one of the most profound witnesses you offer in this moment. Our intention with this podcast is indeed to protect and preserve the belovedness of our brothers and sisters. We respect and dearly love those who have declined to share and those who are not ready to do so. For those who want their voices heard, we pray that this will be a space that God can use for our collective growth and unity. And one final note, (laughs) we ask that you use discretion with younger listeners as some of the stories may be better suited for mature audiences. Without further ado. Kathy is our guest on today's episode. I guarantee that you're going to want to get to know Kathy better after listening to this. 
I'm going to be thinking about what she shared about the wisdom of taking a pause for a long, long time. Thanks for joining us. I want to welcome Kathy to our podcast and want to just say that I hope that you all will tune in to hear her story. I have had the pleasure over this past year to get to know Kathy and hear a little bit about her life. Today, Kathy, I'm looking forward to learning more about you. I just would like to hear about you. Tell us about your story and the story of how you got to be you. How I got to be me. (laughs) Well, I don't know all the inner workings of that, but (laughs) I was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. I've lived in Chicago, California, and now Minnesota. Been in Minnesota for the past 11 years. My siblings, there were five. Five. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where are you following that? I'm the third oldest. Yes. I'm the middle child. That was that was very special. Mm -hmm. Being the middle child. Yeah. Because what actually it was good and bad. Because the brothers and sisters, they liked me sometimes, but sometimes not because they played together and I was so concerned about helping my mom and my grandma with things around the house. So I would get up and just start doing something, say washing the walls, kitchen walls or something like that. And my siblings were not happy with that at all. They wondered why why you were doing that and not playing with them no because they were closer in age the two oldest ones are boys and then the two youngest is a girl and a boy so they were closer in age and not that they intentionally excluded me but that's the dynamics of a middle child you know they're often kind of left kind of on their own to figure it out but my whole thing was i watched my grandmother and mother work my mother was divorced by then and it was just something in me that wanted to help. Uh, one day, actually, I, they had went out, my parent, my mother and my grandmother had went out shopping. And when they came back, I had prepared dinner. And needless to say, I was the resident cook after that. <laughs> so you took on a lot of responsibility in your home. Yeah, but it, it didn't seem like responsibility. I, I really enjoyed it. You know, I learned, my grandmother took me under her wing and, she let me sous chef. That was my that was my job. It, it was a lot of fun though. A lot of fun. I come from a very multicultural family. My great great grandmother was capacity for a white woman, but she didn't. But some of her children's children did. As a matter of fact, one of them got to be very affluent in Chicago as an attorney. But, yeah, she had blonde hair and blue eyes, and it's always been mixed in my family. We call it the melting pot in our culture, where you have just a culmination of various races, you know, that cohabitate, you know, in some form or fashion. Uncle Charlie looked just like Santa Claus. And he was very influential in the community because... Back then, it was the time of the Depression. That's when my mother was a little girl. And he would make sure that the lights in people's homes in the community stayed on. He knew how to do all of that type of thing. 
And actually, well, he can't get in trouble now because he's passed on. He used to make coin money. <laughs> yeah, but he was a very Santa Claus-like fellow, you know. And uh, one thing about uh, my growing up that I will treasure the rest of my life is that we didn't have the luxury to be prejudiced. We didn't really know, understand racism till we were kind of up in age because there was always somebody of another nationality within our family. So they just looked like a, a person, which is what we all should do in the first place, especially Christians, you know, because we've seen it throughout biblical history that these things did occur. But once the Gentiles were grafted in, then we're all supposed to be just plain simple human beings judged on the content of our characters uh, as Dr. King would say on our deeds and I'm very grateful for the experience of that because we didn't understand prejudice for a long while it sounds like your family and family life was really important to you and in that growing up family that you learned at an early age the value of each person and as the creation that they are, um, not looking at um, the color of skin or the nationality or ethnicity. Right. You, were, you were a human being created by God. Exactly. At that time, you said you really weren't familiar with or aware of the impact of race when would you say, or is there a particular experience or an event or a place that you did become aware of the impact of race on your life in our world? First incident of racism, I really didn't get it at that time. My uh, step-grandfather was Caucasian, and there is a place in Chicago called Rainbow Ice Cream that's out on uh, Western Avenue. And they have the most delicious ice cream you ever want to taste. And my grandfather and grandmother packed us kids up. My mother had five children, as I stated earlier, and took us out there, which was a predominantly white neighborhood. Uh, I'd say 99.9% white. And uh, we went out there to have ice cream. And all of a sudden, my uh, step-grandfather says, what are you looking at? Haven't you seen a family enjoying ice cream before? And really, um, we looked up, but it was like the ice cream was more enticing to us than this conversation that was going on because we were children, you know. But I never, rem I, I remember his face. I knew something was going on, but I didn't know exactly what. And in recollection, uh, the people that were, also, that were also sitting out there, when he started talking, they started shifting themselves. How old do you think you were? I was probably about eight, maybe. Would you say that you have any other life experience where you, as a person of color, was you were not heard, or you personally experienced racism? 
The most significant one to me is one that did not affect me as much as it did my child. Uh, I was living in a mixed neighborhood, but predominantly white. And I was the only African American in the family, in the building that I lived in. And I had lived there about two years by this time. I worked in the community. I worked like a block and a half away from where I resided, which is uh, Wrigleyville, where the, uh, yeah, Cubs. <laughs> and um, it was Mother's Day. My father had came to watch my children. And for Mother's Day, he had gave me the permission to go out with my friends and enjoy myself and have a sleepover. And I did. But when I arrived back to my home, my son had the most unusual look in his face that I had ever saw from anyone. And I was like, what, what's, what's the matter? What's happening? And so my father told me to sit down. And he told me that my son was stopped in the back of my apartment building. And there were two officers involved. And he was trying to tell, they, they stopped the two young men, and he was, my son was trying to tell the officers that he lived right there. And one of the, I say the racist officer, tells my son that that was a likely story. Like, we couldn't live in that building. And the other officer, thank God, if I knew his name today, I would like to personally thank him because if it wasn't for him, I don't know how far the other officer would have went because they actually pinned them up against some trans, uh, trash cans with their car. And all my son and his friend was guilty of was going next door. It was a gas station right next door. And believe it or not, the police station was right across the street on Ash, uh, Addison and Halstead in Chicago. And... He kept telling him, I just want to go home. Can I go get my grandpa? Can I go get my grandpa? And the racist officer wasn't listening to him, but thanks be to God that the other officer was. So they're pent up, and so the officer said, it's something true to this young man's story because he keeps saying he lives right here. And they let him go. He ran. That's how they knew he lived there. He, my son and his friend ran to the back door and just started bamming on it to get into the home. Yeah, so I come home and I, don't, I can't tell you how I got across the street to the police station because I have no recollection of it. All I know is one minute I'm in the living room looking at my son and the next minute, I'm standing at the desk talking to the captain and sergeant of the police station. How old was your son? My, my son at the time was 12. Yeah, he hadn't graduated from grade school yet. So, yeah, that's the one that affected me the most because he lost his innocence. He knew what prejudice was at that moment where you could just see it in this kid's face. I, I, I can never forget it. 
you know. So I, I say, well, that's part of, I, his father was dead, so I being, just trying to be mom and dad, I was telling him, these are the types of things that make us stronger. This should not happen. But I want you to take that and learn from it. I am so grateful that you weren't confrontational, which he wasn't a confrontational child in the first place. But you have to keep in mind these things do occur. So, yeah, that was one of the big ones. What happened at the police station? Do you remember that? I uh, Well, actually, nothing happened to the police, but I actually filled a, a formal complaint. And, of course, they, they found no... no no foundation to do anything to the officers. That was one. They And then my son and my nephew, and we're talking about good kids. We're not talking about, you know, some kids get in a lot of trouble. I've never had any trouble out of them. They got stopped, but they got, they let them go quick too, because my son, I always told him to carry identification with my name and my number. They got stopped at Wrigleyville down the street because it was a game and they see these two boys running, but they don't have bus service there. You have to, you know, go way up. They were going to get an extra gift for my younger child. But that one, he pulled out his, <laughs> he said, Mom, I, I just pulled out my, my card and I let them know. Because, like I say, we live right on uh, Halston and Addison, which is three blocks from Wrigley Field. You know, and then they let them go. So it's just been a few workplace place issues and stuff like that. But I've only gotten stronger from it. How are you this from this past year? A lot has happened in our world um, and country from processing the killing of George Floyd to the pandemic to uh, changes and concerns about immigration and detention of children. How are you processing all of that? It's it's very difficult to not just get mad and want to do something <laughs> to someone. You're you know you you can get very flip very easily because you're having these feelings of anxiety, and though it hasn't directly affected you it still affects us all. And I think it's so unfortunate over the last four or five years to actually be able to see how far we have went down as far as, you know, race race relations goes. It's scary. You know, it's very scary. And from my uh, vantage point, I don't even see it being better in my lifetime. I'm praying it will be better for my great-grandchildren's lifetime, but I really don't see it being better for my lifetime, and I think that's very sad. You shared with me previously a story about a letter that you wrote yes. to the editor and in a California paper. Right. Do you feel comfortable kind of sharing any thoughts from that letter? Oh, yeah, that, <laughs> that really, that letter was written in, I believe, 1987. And the staff writer was named Steve uh, Alex Pulaski. 
and the, the paper was the Fresno Bee in Fresno, California. And they had this front page article about different neighborhoods. And they depicted uh, the black neighborhoods as a war zone and this and that. And this is the neighborhood I'm living in. And uh, <laughs> I'm not seeing any of that. But it was so derogatory that I had to talk at 6 o'clock in the morning. I'm reading the plenty paper at the table, cup of coffee. And when I start reading that article, I just got so disgusted. You know, and... I always unplug my phone on Sunday mornings because I, I don't particularly like phone calls. And at that type of morning, they especially come from back home. So I had unplugged the phone. And as quickly as I unplugged that phone, I plugged it back in and woke my mother up. Because I had to talk to somebody. I read her the article or most of the article, and she said, well, Kathy, you know what you have to do. When you see injustice, you're supposed to speak on it. You're supposed to say something because that affects you. And I, I did. I wrote the letter, and I showed it to you because it's like this was in 1987. And look where we're at in 2000. 21. Not much difference. You know, when we judge uh, people uh, not by their actions, I mean, by the, you know, just by sight, then we can get it totally, totally messed up. And I know that firsthand. And I also was explaining in the letter, uh, that's why we have the situations that we have exactly right now back then in 87 because people don't look at you as a human they look look at you as subhuman my children and I would go out you know and have dinner I always took them special places when I can afford it you know not McDonald's because you have to know how to eat anywhere you go there's certain protocols that you need to follow and it's not running around the restaurant and you know some restaurants require that you have cloth napkins. And so I always made it a point when I could to show my children these things. And we would be sitting up there and talking and people are eavesdropping our conversations, you know, looking like, oh, who are they? You know, and I'm just a plain, ordinary working mom, you know, and the women I know are just like me. So I don't know what. They're used to seeing, but we never hear stories about that. We only hear when it's totally bad news. And another example of that, what about uh, the story of uh, Henrietta Lacks or the, uh, uh, the hidden figures, those women worked as mathematicians? You know, we don't hear about those. We're just hearing about that type of contributions that we have made that have affected the whole world. So a lot of stories of people who have had black Americans who have had successes in contributing to the world in business in arts and science have been, have been hidden or, yes. or treated as though they didn't exist rather 
the world hears about rebelliousness and right. crime from the black population. Right. And and you know when we take when we take what you just said and look at it, that's that's bad in any race. But we also have to look at how our country was founded. This country was not a gift to anyone. This country belonged to the Indians of this country. And so it's been some type of killing and just mayhem all throughout history, even in biblical times, you know, but we're here now. So what do we do? We, you know, one group is better than the other. And no, I don't think so. That's not right. It's not biblical and humanely it's not right. History has shown us about conquest and striving for power. Yes. And yet above all that arises the understanding of the value of each individual. Correct. How has your faith in Christ been challenged by these experiences? In every human manner there is. But I believe in God. I know I'm God's child. And if I believe in God, there are certain things that I should be prepared for. Biblically speaking, in Ephesians 6, it tells us that we're to get up every day, putting on the whole armor of God. Not so that we can look pretty, (laughs) so that we can fight against the wiles of the devils and enemies and wickedness in high places. So I have to bring that into my being. And honest to God, I don't get it right every time. I get angry and I get, well, well, I'm just going to say pissed because that's the way I feel about certain things. But then too, with all of those feelings, I have to go back to the word of God because that's what I believe. I believe that he will take care of me and those who love him, those who know him. And it's not going to be pretty all the time. He didn't promise us that. He didn't promise this was going to be a party 24-7, seven days a week. So I can't look for that. It sounds like you found a safety and a safe place in God's presence and in, in God's embrace for whatever emotions you might feel or sorrows anger because he says he doesn't say don't get angry says don't sleep with anger or don't go to bed with anger he knows that we have human frailties and we all have them but what do we do with them do we act on them or do we go to god for guidance and say father i need help with this because i'm feeling like i'm gonna lose it or feeling powerless to to step forward in responding. Yes, and even Paul was tested. He was like, uh, you know, this thorn is really getting me, Father. Uh, can you do something about it? What does God tell us? He says, no, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. So it's you have to rely on me. If you don't rely on me, I don't know what's going to happen to you. You shared a couple of scriptures already, yet do you have any 
specific Bible story or another scripture you'd like to share with us that holds meaning for you? So many, so many have guided me. The book of Psalms, all of them, basically. I have a few favorites. Um, Psalms 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? Um, love that. Love Psalms 23. It's just so many. 111. Mm -hmm. It's so many that I love. Paul has ministered to me, and it's so many wonderful teachings throughout the Bible that we can actually go to. Well, God tells us, if I care for the birds of the air, how much more will I care for you? Oh, also, Second Timothy, God does not give us the spirit of fear, but of power and a sound mind. It's so many things that can help. I've learned so many things in the Bible that can help us through if we but take a pause. And that's the whole thing we need to do. And I believe we were speaking about uh, what happened uh, with George Floyd. If uh, Chauvin would have taken a pause, if we but just take a pause, it could change us for a lifetime. That's a beautiful insight. I really appreciate that. I'm going to ask you a few questions about Northfield and Minnesota. How healthy or unhealthy do you think the town of Northfield and the state of Minnesota are as it uh, pertains to racial matters, matters of equity or opportunity, systemic racism? Well, I think that question as far as Minnesota has been answered, though I do think that's true of every town. Minnesota could be any town in, or any state in the United States. I think we've proved, uh, it's been proven that there are things that need to be done, especially about police brutality, especially when it refers to people of color. Minnesota, like I say, it's not much different than any other state in the Union, in my, in my opinion. Northfield, I haven't had, I've been here three years, and before that, Lonsdale, and I haven't had any major issues as far as racism is concerned, but I know that they exist through others, like some young women got up, uh, high school students, and spoke about racism at, at their school a couple of years ago at the Martin Luther King uh, Jr. celebration that they had here. So I know they exist. They haven't, I haven't been affected too much by it. Most people that I've met here in Northfield and in Lonsdale and in Kenyon, just ordinary, ordinary people. You know, I joined the 50 North, the senior facility here. And I got a couple of looks because it's not that many of us that go there. You know, as a matter of fact, I've, I've maybe seen one black, one black woman other than myself participating in the exercise program and the aquatic programs that they offer there. So when I started going there, you can, you can tell. You can tell. It's like, who is she and where is she from? Or, you know, so you get the looks and stuff. But I just ignore it because, like I say, I, I'm just a very confident person and I've always been taught about pride. You should have Pride in how you look, pride in what you say. You should have a semblance of pride. No one 
should ever, you should never feel that someone is better than you. So I walk with my head held high. Has there been a time that you have felt that your voice has been heard? And how was that situation different than being ignored or or not heard? I've been heard on a lot of things. I've been heard on on uh, various suggestions at work. And that was special because when I went to this particular job in Wrigleyville, it was at that time the third largest greeting card company in the country. And I went in as a basically a technical person to teach the field personnel how to use handheld computer system to send their orders in. Sometimes I was heard and sometimes I wasn't. And sometimes it was based on race because I came as an outsider and the management of the department that I had taken over for a two-week period, they didn't like the fact that not only was I from the outside, but I was African-American as well. But I turned all of that around too. You know, through actions, through what I produced. As you know, Emmaus is a predominantly white congregation. How can Emmaus Church improve in the ways it cares for and journeys with people of color in our congregation? Is there a blind spot or something you just wish that we would know? I think Emmaus is brave in the fact that they are doing what they're doing, number one. Number two, our Baptist, being an African-American Baptist, is a little bit more jubilant. (laughs) Yes. You're Uh, a diplomat. (laughs) We we celebrate a little bit more jubilantly than, um, than I've experienced here, but... I come for the word, and I have to accept, you know, different ways that people worship God, as long as they appreciate and accept the way that we do. Because I oftentimes, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not as jubilant as I want to be because I don't want to offend someone. And Pastor Abe and I have actually had a conversation about this. And he was like, just go right on in and go for it. And we've had um, congregants that have, you know, that do display. But, you know, some people, they don't understand that part, you know. Uh, But no one says anything. But I feel very comfortable here at Emmaus, you know, when I do come visit. I'm still a member of a church in Chicago. Uh, but just to understand where where that comes from. When we when like when we worship, especially in the Baptist faith, it's all about joy. The the Bible says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. You know, so that's why we play all of the music. And you guys, too. You guys, I mean, the, the choir is something else, you know. Uh, but it's just a little bit more tame. <laughs> but <laughs> no dancing in the aisles. Yeah, yeah. 
But you know what? Now, some people take that to the extreme, too. Okay, I believe God can touch us. I know that because I used to look at people when I was a young kid and I'd be like, are you kidding me? You know, and actually some people do perform. I mean, they they do perform. But anytime the Lord touches my heart, then I'm going to react according to what the spirit says, because it's a spirit that comes that, that comes out. All this is just window dressing. But the spirit does rise up in you and will make you react. You know, but uh, so far. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And the Holy Spirit will move you out of your seat. The Holy Spirit will have you fall upon the altar and sing praises loud, <laughs> loud as a bullhorn. <laughs> What else would you like to share with us that you haven't so far as we kind of draw things to a close? At first, I wasn't going to do this. You know that, Pastor Susan, I gave you my reservations because I felt like um, I shouldn't have to justify who I am. Why are we sitting in a place now where, you know, I've got to justify, hi, my name is Kathy, and, you know, I'm this or I'm that, instead of people getting to know you on an individual basis. And one thing I want to bring that up, God rest her soul, Sharon, uh, oh my goodness, she was one of the first women I met here going to Bible class, her and Shirley, and... They just made me welcome from the moment they met me. I'd like to say, firstly, uh, that she's truly going to be missed. She had a wealth of knowledge, and, and I just loved her so much. And that's what made me keep coming back and Pastor A, you know, after meeting him and listening to his teachings, that made me come back. And it's, I'm just appreciative that you guys got together and said, how can we help? How can we make change? Because something needs to change. We need to understand each other better. We need to listen to each other more. You guys already help, you know, people in need. I've heard about different situations where this particular church has helped so many people in need. And I just like to applaud you for that. Because it means a lot to any community. But Norfield is blessed having you in the community. So I think that's what I'd like to end with. This has really been a significant time with you to hear a little bit more of your story and your life experience. I thank you for the privilege of, of being hearers of your story. And I pray that... Going forward, that we can continue to learn more about each other face-to-face -face and within our congregation, within our community, begin to see each other for the ways that God created us. Amen. I agree with you wholeheartedly. <laughs> thanks for listening to the I Am God's Beloved podcast. Special thanks to Emmaus Church in Northfield for supporting this project. We hope you will join us again next time.